It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I am really looking forward to today's conversation with our guest, Eva, because we are going to talk about well-being and how that integrates with success in our lives and our work. And it's a subject matter that Jason and I addressed in an episode about a month or so ago because I got very triggered after watching this person on television who seemed to think that well-being and self-care were not priorities. (laughs) And I thought, wow, I am clearly looking at life through a completely different lens than this woman who is in a different generation than me. So I I actually was wondering, like, is it a generational thing? Is it a political belief system? What is it that causes us to think about life through different lenses? And I'm definitely curious to see if you think that applies, Eva, or if there's something else going on that causes so many people, especially older generations, it seems, from my lens to not prioritize well-being, to get stuck in hustle culture and grind culture and and work our way to the bone and get burnt out when clearly Jason and I are big advocates for self-care. But I thought it would be an interesting subject matter to start with and what you've observed through your work. Do you see a lot of people not only not prioritizing self-care for themselves, but perhaps even having this lens that no one should prioritize self-care, which just seems so foreign to me. So I'm curious, is that foreign to you? Is that something that you come across in your work? And why do you think it is that some people want to work so hard and push themselves beyond their physical or mental limits to try to grasp more levels of success financially or like uh, title wise or whatever else someone deems as success? What have you seen in your work? Well, I love how you reference generational stuff. You know, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, there was this commercial for a perfume called Anjali. And it was a woman Jason, do you remember it? And it had this catchy yes. little jingle. I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan, and never let you forget you're a man, because I'm a woman, Anjali. Now, I used to sing that in the mirror. I was probably in my late teens, early 20s in the late 70s, early 80s. So when we talk about generational, we grew up with the idea that we could have it all. And in order to have it all, we have to be it all and do it all too. And ideas like that have set us up to be burnt out, stressed out, and overwhelmed. Now, your ability to be successful depends on your ability to prioritize without regret. 
and success requires selfishness. You cannot be your best or do your best so that everyone can have their best if you don't feel your best. And the problem is that selfishness in and of itself has a bad connotation. And listen, we have to be selfish so that we can perform better. Now, it doesn't mean selfishness in a way that is, I won't share my cookie with you. Like that's my level of selfish. I I always told my kids, you can have a kidney, but not my cookies. (laughs) But here's the thing, until we learn how to prioritize our self-care, and self-care, by the way, is not separate from productive action. It's a part of it. And there's a reason why, and I hate to sound cliche, that the airlines tell you, you have to put your oxygen mask on first. You know, being a martyr, and I know this is getting real on this podcast, but I had that Anjali mentality. When I was working full-time as a dental hygienist, I was building my entrepreneurial business like a lot of people do. They still work their full-time jobs while they're building their business. But I was also cooking, shopping, laundry, doing it all and proud of it. I had the superwoman martyr cape on until my health started to break down. My mood was cranky, stressed out and overwhelmed all the time. And eventually my relationship with my husband was burning out. And I found out, I discovered his infidelity. And that was the two by four that I needed to the head to know that I cannot be the best wife, partner, businesswoman until I learned how to take care of myself and master the art of saying no and prioritizing, getting clear. I call it my CPR, getting clarity, prioritizing, and taking responsibility to set boundaries. Eva, something like infidelity can be a moment in one's life that can, I think, rearrange your entire frame of reality, what you thought was real. So here you are in superwoman mode, checking all the proverbial boxes. Great mom, great dental hygienist, great budding entrepreneur, woman kicking ass in the world, doing all the things you think you ought to be doing to fulfill these roles. And then you discover this news. And how did that affect your sense of self, your sense of beingness in the world, being on this track and then having this life-changing information come in? How did you navigate that emotionally? And ultimately, what did that experience do to your sense of being and purpose in the world? How did that affect that? It was literally the paddles, the CPR paddles. I was clear in that moment that I shared responsibility for the breakdown of my marriage. It was not 100% his fault. And we each had to share 100% of the responsibility of the breakdown. And I knew that the money-making priorities, what's the point if I didn't have the people that I loved and cared about the most to share them with me? You know, we were talking a little bit offline about Berlin and Germany, and we have a a home in Berlin where we love to spend summers in Europe. That's always been a dream of mine. 
but I'm not good at speaking German. My husband is German. And my first thought was just like, well, I don't want to go to Berlin by myself. <laughs> you know, I, I had a little bit of a sense of humor, but in all seriousness, it was a punch in the gut. And we had to really come together to create our, to get clear on what our priorities were, to get clear on what's important and then set boundaries as to how we could support and move our priorities forward. And the first thing we got clear on was, were we going to do the work it takes to break through this breakdown or were we going to choose to break up from this breakdown? And so that was our first choice point, not knowing what the result would be, but knowing that we would do the work to have the relationship that we both wanted without being committed. I want to put this in a way that your listeners understand. We recommitted to having a relationship that we both desired and deserved. However, the commitment to the relationship was stronger than the commitment to each other as a person. And the reason why is because people make mistakes. People make mistakes. And when you are committed, yes, we wanted to be with each other and we wanted the relationship to be with each other. But there was also a very strong possibility that for us to have the relationship that we wanted and deserved, it may not be with each other. And that was the scary part. That was the scary part, but we were willing to do the work to find out. And fortunately for us, we are still together and we are going strong, but not knowing in the beginning was very, very difficult. So we had to know each other ourselves individually and really do a deeper knowing on ourselves, which is kind of the foundation of the work that I do with my clients in high performance, because most of us don't know why we react the way we do, why we have the triggers we do, and how that can damage how we show up in our relationships. And so we unpacked a lot of stuff about ourselves and we worked together to learn how to communicate with each other so that we each caught what we needed in our relationship. And it was a rough journey, but it was so worth it for us to be at the place where we are now, where, you know, we figured it out and we are committed to each other and the relationship that we have. And it's just been, I'm so proud. Let me put it to you that way. I'm so proud that we were willing to get messy and do it and unpack what we had to unpack and really get to what we needed to get to in our relationship so that we could have the breakthrough that we experienced. And, you know, and I get to share that with other people. Well, one of the first things my husband said to me, he's like, you've got to help other people the way you've helped me because I was a hot mess and I was a hot mess too. But the way I fought to hold space for us to have a breakthrough in who we were being, not so much what we were doing, but how we were being and showing up in relationship. And that was the foundation for us to move forward. Wow. I mean, that's such a, a great outcome, you know, because it, it didn't just benefit you, but it benefited others through your work. So were you already doing your high performance work before that happened? Or did that come out of specifically that situation? That actually was a part of the journey. 
And so I had been coaching, but I was coaching very specifically on success in real estate investing because that was the business I was building at that time. And I was doing more of a general life coaching and real estate success coaching at the same time. And part of my journey was relationship and high performance coaching, you know, what I went through to become who I was being. And so then I got certified as a uh, certified high performance coach through uh, the High Performance Institute and Brendan Burchard, who trained trained me and hundreds of other people, of course. And I just continue to grow and develop from there. But that was the catalyst to go deeper because we could have success you know, outward success. Cause a lot of people think, well, as soon as I make this amount of money, or as soon as I get this, or as soon as the kids are out of school, or as soon as, as soon as, then we can focus on us. And a lot of people don't get that chance because by the time all the, as soon as happens, there's not much us left. You've drifted so far apart. And part of the both and is having the success without sacrificing your health, your well-being, or your relationships. And that's the beauty of the high-performance coaching. It really shows you the habits to move forward consistently to that next level of success and advancing career, career while maintaining your health and your relationships and your energy and your vibrancy. It's so important because when we're spent and we're burnt out, you know, it affects us and the people around us, our mood, our health. We get short (laughs) with people. You know, I'll share this funny story with you. When my youngest daughter was around seven years old, I remember I was walking her to school one morning and, you know, the, we stopped at the crosswalk, the crossing guard, you know, stopped traffic. Then we went across the street and I look over at my daughter and she's visibly upset. She's like, oh, I hate that crossing guard. And I look down at her and I look over at this elderly woman, you know, the crossing guards in New Jersey, where we were at the time, they're all 90 years old plus. Like, how could you hate the crossing guard, right? And she's, and I'm like, honey, why do you hate her? What happened? She goes, mom, she told me to hurry up and I was going slow. Like, okay, why were you going slow? And then she points to the sign. She goes, mom, the sign said slow children. So I was going slow. She's stupid. She doesn't know how to do her job because she told me to hurry up. So she had literally thought that the sign meant that the children should be going slow. And the backstory of that was my daughter up until that point had been in and out of the hospital for a few years. And so she was feeling the stress, pressure, and overwhelm of trying to catch up with all her schoolwork. So it didn't take much for her to misinterpret or misunderstand or miscommunicate and then blame others. And that's often the case with us as adults, as we are stressed, burnt out, and overwhelmed. We have some miscommunication and misunderstandings, and we tend to take it out on those around us. Yes. What a great example, because I think it's also ties into this like generational conversation of that. There's some things that separate us by our age, like differences in terms of, you know, what our environments are like when we're growing up and how our parents are and what the society is and culture are like at the time. But then there are also these core things that we share across generations and ages that we can often identify with in people that are much younger or much older than us. And 
those experiences with children are often so enlightening. I also wanted to go back to your journey as a high performance coach, because something that we three have in common is that Jason and I have done a lot of work under Brendan Burchard as well. And I considered uh, getting that certification under the high performance certification program. I went through the academy <laughs> that, he, that Brendan offers and I've read most of his books and you know he's been a huge part of our entrepreneurial journey. And then I'm curious, you feel so balanced and mellow and passionate about not burning ourselves out. And one thing that I'm curious about is how you maintained that given that a lot of the people I've found that go to Brendan's programs tend to be hustlers from from my perspective. And perhaps I'm wrong about this, but people that are are like so passionate about being successful that they lose sight of their well-being. And that was something that I struggled with when I would attend because you would get so hyped up and you would have all this work to do. And you know, you mentioned like your daughter feeling the pressure of keeping up at school. I would feel that as an adult going to these programs and reading the books and thinking, wow, there's so much to do and I want to do this quickly. And I would get caught up in the hectic element of high performance. So how do you integrate the slower pace and the balance and the the true well-being amongst all the hustle and bustle of the high performance world? Well, first of all, it's I think it's crucial to make the distinction that high performance and high achieving are two different things. And I think the energy that you're referencing to is a lot of driven, busy, high achievers. And then there is, you know, a generational thing like I'm 61. And when I was building my business, my entrepreneurial business, I started at 50. So I was hustling. I felt that I didn't have a lot of time left if I wanted to retire and, you know, spend a lot of time in Europe. So, and that was the energy that got me in in trouble. So, you know, if you've ever seen Brendan on stage, is there ever a guy with more energy the way he bounces around like that? I'm like, I'm exhausted watching you. And so here's the thing. And I'm sure you've heard Brendan say this a lot. A power plant doesn't have energy. It generates energy, right? And so I think our problem as a society is that we think that balance means equal. And when you look at a scale that's perfectly balanced, the number on the scale reads zero. And if you want zero results, zero happiness, zero success, then when you are trying to achieve perfect balance, you're zeroing out your results. And so the power lies on knowing when to add or subtract and controlling the scale as we see fit. Mm -hmm. So there may be, excuse me, there may be times when this side requires a lot of hustle, bustle, and energy, but it's got to get balanced out by times when, okay, now it's time for my my family or my vacation or whatever. So your scale is always moving. And so you may be seeing people on different sides of their balance scale as it's moving. You know, when there's a product launch or a program launch, there's the hustle and bustle of getting that done and putting all of your energy into that. My point is the agreements and the boundaries that you make with the people who matter most to you around that. For example, you know, when 
we're going next week to Germany. And so I've been putting in some later night hours, you know, getting, you know, my clients straightened out and getting all the bills paid and everything that needs to be done. But I don't just disappear in my office and not say anything to my husband. It's just like, look, for the next five nights, this is what it looks like for me. When I'm launching a summit or a program or a webinar, or I I just spoke in Portland, as I was telling Jason, you know, I'm going to be doing X, Y, and Z until the speaking engagement, you know, because my memory is not that great. So I've got to practice a lot. And so there's agreements like our personal life is going to be a little off balance for a while as I'm spending time here. And then after that, then I'm back. And so it looks like that. It's a moving scale. But our responsibility is to create those boundaries and communicate them because without boundaries, we don't know safety. And so this is what I need to happen. I, this is where I need you, your support. Can you make dinner the next few nights? Can you walk the dog? You know, until that. And you set those boundaries and you we make joint agreements. Before, I would just, I would be, forgive me, a girl about it and expect him to know. Expect him to read my mind, my body language, my eye roll, you know which women tend to be guilty of doing more often than not. But I happen to be married to a man and he needs me to tell him so that he knows what to expect. I share my needs and expectations. And we weren't doing that in the past. And that's why our communication got wonky. He should know if I'm in my office, I'm busy. Well, no. So now we have this agreement. When my office door is closed, I'm with a client privately. Please don't knock. And that's it. And it's a respected boundary. But before I put that boundary in, knock, 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 can I come in like, I'm with a client, I'm on a Zoom. (laughs) And so there's so much that goes into creating that. But know that if you look at it seasonal, there are times when you've got to put all of your energy into whatever it is you're creating. But you've also got to set boundaries, communicate them, support them so that your family knows what's going on and vice versa. Now, the boundaries I'm setting for taking a month off in September, my clients know I'm going to be away in September because I need to reset and recharge and spend all of that time with my husband. So, you know, my husband knows that if I'm doing all of this work now, when we get to Berlin in September, I'm all his. You know, I'm not one more thing, one more this. Is that making sense? Yeah, it, it does completely. And and I think this also brings up something when you talked earlier, Eva, about, I think you, you said the term radical responsibility and you were doing it under the context of a personal relationship. It's something that I reflect on the idea of ownership and taking responsibility for what is in our lives whether that's our personal relationships, our career, our financial state, all of those things. I think where this idea, certainly I think over the last year and a half, two years has gotten a little bit tricky, has been seeing people talk about the challenges of the systems that are in place in the world. That some people have the opinion that the systems are in place to prevent people from accessing or having or manifesting certain things, a la 
we live in a capitalist system where the people at the top get all the spoils and subjugate everyone else to being wage slaves to make their wealth for them. That's one example. Another example is the systemic racism that exists in the country. And I definitely want to get into your book, The Intimacy of Race, because I know you have so many resources to share on that. But the framework I've seen is people saying, okay, I get the radical responsibility idea, but there's also a lot of systems that are in place that some people believe are there to oppress and prevent them. So how does radical responsibility and this idea of living in, quote, corrupt systems, if you will, how are those ideas compatible or not compatible in your, in your mind? I think we all have a responsibility to educate ourselves about the systems, what's in place, and how we can benefit from the systems and how parts of the systems we can't benefit from. I was part of the employee system for 50 plus years of my life, not knowing the Federal Reserve was not, was made up of people and millionaires. I was thinking it was a federal organization. And there's a, there's quite a few books to educate yourselves around that, but just learning how and why the system was set up actually motivated me to be an entrepreneur, to be a business owner so that I can contribute to job creation, you know, and as an employee, you get taxed at the highest rate, but as a business owner or entrepreneur, if you set up your, your entities correctly, the system is set up that you make your money, you spend as much as of it as you can and need to run your business, and then you're taxed on what's left. But as an employee, you make your money, the government takes the taxes first, and you're forced to live off of what's next. I didn't grow up learning that in school. You know, I learned from Rich Dad Education, Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I went through all the courses. I invested in mentors and coaches to teach me that. And so, you know, my responsibility was to get educated. I think most people are not educated in the financial system, the financial education, because they don't teach that in school at all. And so they go around being victim to the system and not knowing that the system was set up to reward people who create jobs, but also that the Federal Reserve was set up to set up an educational system to keep people as employees. And so, you know, it's funny how once you have the resources and access to education and to learn that, then you can make responsible choices for yourself. Mine was, well, there's no way I'm going to stay an employee. I may take a job here and there because with a W-2, I get better access to mortgages and lower rates, <laughs> you know? So it really is a strategic plan of mine when I do do something like that because I still run a, a very successful real estate investment company with my husband. And so it's really... I think the system is designed to keep people poor and uneducated about how they could build their own wealth. And when you are in a position where you know, I think people who know have a responsibility to share their knowledge with those who don't so that more people have a way to 
break free of the system or use the system to their advantage in a way that creates a win-win, if any of that makes sense. Absolutely. And you're really such a beautiful example of that. And especially as a woman, given that we're, we're still in a time, believe it or not, that, you know, women tend to not have the higher positions or high as, as much wealth or wealth made on, um, by themselves, you know, the self-made woman. I feel like we're still working through all of that. And it's really fascinating, as you're mentioning, when you start to examine this. Another book that came to mind is, is Tony Robbins' book, Money, which I've been meaning to go back and reread. I remember J- both Jason and I years ago got the book and we're reading it separately. And it was like, oh, this is so much work because it felt like every page I read was something I didn't know. And I had to like pause and understand it and take it in. And it like brought me back to being in school when it was like reading a textbook. But it also revealed to me how much I didn't know about money and how much I still don't know and how I have to be very committed to it, not just making money, but saving money and investing money. I mean, these are some of the things that I would learn by by going to programs like Brendan Burchard's. And another thing I wanted to touch upon on this, tied into this subject matter is Brendan is very known for habits. And he has that book, High Performance Habits, which is so tied into your work. And through my research on habits, I've learned how hard it is for people to just create them and then stick to them. I mean, habits are a immense struggle. They come up so much in our health and wellness, physically and mentally. They come up in our finances. They come up in our careers. I've just been kind of stumped in how to support people on building that. But that's I imagine, based on what I know of Brendan's work, that that's a huge part of your coaching. So what are some of the things that you've observed and how do you help people simply create the habits so that they can get on the path for educating themselves and then doing something with that knowledge? Well, there's a book that I read and and it's really escaping me, but it really is how... oh. You know what? It's Jen Sincero's book. Do you you know Jen Sincero, the You Are Badass? Well, she wrote a book yes. about badass habits. Yep. Did you know that? I read that, yeah. <laughs> and I just love her writing because there's so much humor into it. And listen, it all starts with being clear on your vision and goals. And you've got to look at, I have this formula that I use, S plus R equals R. You have a situation, right? That's S plus R equals R, which is your results. Your middle R is what you have control over, your reaction or your response, which is more of a adult responsibility or a knee-jerk reaction. And so you get the choice to create systems, habits that either forward your vision or pull you further away from it. And so you've gotta have the commitment to what you're creating. And creating is always in present moment. And a lot of things I teach my clients are, are the routines, you know, and habit stacking. You know, when you and I were talking a little bit about the the trampoline, if I don't start my morning off on a trampoline, singing my favorite oldie songs that my husband makes fun of, he's like, oh my God, when are you going to get in the century? But I'm like, I need me some Stevie Wonder. I end it with 
Bill Withers. It's going to be a lovely day. And I look at myself in the mirror and I set myself up to win. And so movement is creating the energy that I need to move my vision and goals forward, my intention. People don't set intentions. They just, whatever happens in the day, they'll react to, they'll respond to. You've got to control your day so your day doesn't control you. Now, yes, there are things that come up, but really have habits that create forward movement for your commitment to your goals, just like I did with my relationship. You know, I can't hold in what I'm feeling and expect my husband to know. That was a habit of mine from my early life experiences. This is something most of us, we learn this many, many years ago based on the relationships that were modeled for us, the households that we grew up in, the parents, how our parents handled emotions and conflicts and sharing. You know, my mother always told me, don't bother your father. He's got so much on his mind, you know, don't wake him up. He's working two jobs. And so I learned to keep things in. And, but then, but I thought I expect you to know based on my facial expressions, what's going on in my head, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but not realizing how that was damaging my relationships. Like I've told you once, don't you remember? And so another book that's helpful is um, the five love languages. I'm sure you guys have heard of that one too. But when we talk about habits, I think you've got to look back, start for, with the end in mind. What do you want to create? What are your goals? And how important and committed are you to those goals? I know if I'm not feeling well, see, if I don't feel like working out and I give in to my feelings, my feelings do not have my best interest in mind in that case. And so I've got to control my feelings so my feelings don't control me. And so on those mornings, I was training with Jesse Itzler for a endurance challenge once. And every 10 days, he gave us a new 10-day workout. And I remember getting, you know, not feeling like getting up or if I was traveling, if I was on the road speaking, to get up at five, six o'clock in the morning to work out. But knowing that the time I spent making up excuses not to was time I could have had the workout finished. I mean, I would literally spend 30 minutes convincing myself it's too cold out. You don't want to. It's raining. The gym has germs, you know, like all of this stuff. And it's just like, you know, you've heard Brendan say common sense isn't always common practice. It's just like, just get up and do it and get it over with. And now I can't live without it because I've done it enough. I kept a lot of things that I, I did with Jesse then. But my point is, your feelings are rarely aligned with what's best for you. And the reason why we don't create habits that support our goals and visions is because that little two-year-old toddler of our feelings is throwing a fit and we're giving into it. All right, have the ice cream cone for dinner, knowing that you will have a stomachache later. And so you've got to really put your, you know, your big girl and your big boy panties on and say, look, this action, this habit is going to support my vision and my dream for what I want to create and be committed to that. This brings up something we love to talk about, Eva, which is resistance. And in this process you're describing of putting the big girl pants on, I actually wore pants for the first time in months this morning. 
Speaking of pants, and boy, did that feel interesting to put actual pants on. Apropos of that, I was just like, oh, right, these, these are pants. But with resistance in this conversation, whether that's the the two-year-old tantrum, the inner voice, that part of us tells us why we shouldn't do something, what have you noticed within yourself and your clients in these high-performance habits of ways to overcome resistance? Because it sounds like what you're describing, correct me if I'm wrong, you might have a different term for it. I interpret what you described as exerting will. Like, I hear this part of me that says, don't do it, don't do it, have the ice cream, stay in bed. Actually, have the ice cream in bed. Fuck it, don't do anything today. Which I have my own version of that voice. But willpower, is that the solution to resistance? Or is it more complex or even simpler than I've made it out to be? What's your relationship with resistance? My relationship is more procrastination and distraction because that's how resistance is subtly showing up. Well, yeah, you could say, no, I don't want to. Like, okay, ask yourself, why don't you want to? You know, I go into the inquiry. What is the feeling that I, that's coming within me that's causing me to resist? Like, why are you resisting? Is it just because you don't want to? Because it's hard? Are you afraid of what people might think? Are you afraid of failing? Are you afraid of being seen starting small? Hmm. That's a big one with a lot of people, especially in high performance, that embarrassment of when you're just starting to ride a bike. Like I never learned how to ride a bike as a child. And I remember my, my children actually taught me how to ride a bike. And I remember right. I'm looking at my window, riding up and down the street in the neighborhood kids that lady doesn't know how to ride a bike, but you know, and how embarrassing that was. But I had a stronger desire to ride a bike than to let the embarrassment of not knowing as an adult stop me. As, um, is it Simon Sinek who said, you know, your why has to be greater than your why not is the bottom line. But when we look at distractions and procrastinations and things we'd rather do than the thing that we know we need to do to do to get the thing that we want. That's a habit. You're not a procrastinator. You have a habit of procrastinating when things feel hard, when things feel uncomfortable. And so there's power in the knowing. There's power in the awareness of knowing. I'm not writing my keynote because I'm afraid I'm going to flop when I stand up to give it another people. So let me, you know, this is my thing. Let me get on Canva and design something instead. <laughs> That's my number one procrastination. Let me check this Instagram real quick, or let me see what they're saying about the latest picture of my dog that I posted on Facebook. You know, we do things because of the feeling that's uncomfortable to avoid that uncomfortable feeling. And so I think the important part when it comes to resistance is to really know yourself well enough to know why. Why are you resisting? Why are you procrastinating? Why are you letting distractions, the squirrels nest outside my window? Why is it so fascinating to look at that when you need to be writing your next blog or your next article for a media magazine or whatever? Because we'll look at this little tail sticking out so cute. You know, like that's me. And it's like, okay, Eva, close the window. Like stop avoiding it, set a timer. And one of the things that helps a lot with doing hard things is the timer. 
Like stay focused for 15 minutes on one thing. And then even if you got one sentence done, it was a focused sentence. So when you talk about resistance, my relationship with resistance is a deeper knowing of why am I resisting this one thing? What am I afraid of? What do I feel incompetent? Me, it's mostly incompetence. When I feel resistance, I don't feel smart enough or good enough or whatever to do the thing. And I don't know what to do. It's going to be terrible. I'm going to stink. I'm going to bomb. And all of that comes out. I have a curiosity with this inquiry about knowing oneself well enough. One of Whitney's favorite, or actually not, I know for sure it's your favorite question is why. I don't, don't need to even pontificate or conjecture. Whitney's favorite question is why. And I think that the power of this question in the context of resistance is clearly palpable. I want to pivot for a moment, Eva, into your amazing work around cultural inclusivity, around race, this book that you have, The Intimacy of Race, you know, that, that explores the divide, that this undeniable divide that we're all looking at. And certainly over the course of the pandemic, inclusivity, diversity, justice, race, these have all been very much top of mind for Whitney and myself and many other friends and colleagues we've had conversations with. Is there a value and I, I want you to pontificate on this, Eva, in applying this level of deep inquiry as an individual who may identify that they, I don't know if they would label themselves as a racist or have the awareness around certain judgments or discriminatory practices they have, whether that's racism, sexism, a lot of the dangerous isms we have. Is that kind of self-inquiry useful in a person, say, going, wow, I didn't have an awareness around my prejudices, my judgments against people who have different skin color, different gender, et cetera. And through that inquiry, if people are willing, have you found that it can exhume a deeper understanding of, oh, I'm this way because I have these belief systems of culture, or maybe my father was racist or my grandfather, I'm curious in your work around race, how inquiry and self-awareness plays a part in people opening their hearts and opening their sense of compassion and inclusivity to others. What I've witnessed with the events that spark this discussion around this worldwide discussion around race is people's connotation, definition, visual image of racism. And it's usually swastikas, skinheads, hate, lynchings, discriminations, segregation, all of that. And racism is so much more subtle and unconscious. If you look at the tagline to the book is the intimacy of race, how to move from unconscious or subconscious racism to active allyship. And so, yes, the awareness is a pivotal, pivotal point because most of our racism, and when I say our, it's every color of the rainbow, racism is subconscious. We're not conscious of it. We're not aware of it. And so what's happening is we're getting a deeper knowing of what microaggressions are, what unconscious biases are, because we're used to the overt connotation and display and demonstration of racism. So automatically, to think of yourself as racist 
or to have somebody accuse you of being racist. No, I'm not. I was taught to love everybody and to not see color. And, you know, I've never, you know, lynched anybody or marched or hated or anything like that. And so that's where the deeper knowing of, you know, implicit biases, unconscious bias is. And that's part of the work that I do with people is to really just acknowledge that, yeah, we all were educated in a racist system. So unless you grew up in the jungle somewhere and have no formal education, you did not escape it. I didn't escape it. You didn't escape it. And some of the awarenesses and ahas I had about myself were like, whoa, I think it's beautiful that we can become aware of it. I became aware of how I defended and supported white fragility to a level that I never recognized before. And so I think the beauty of the uprising that occurred had a lot of people really take a good, hard look at themselves. You have to know yourself before you can grow yourself. But you've got to look at yourself honestly, without judgment, with the space and grace. That's why I'm like, cancel culture is like, what the heck? Like, stop. People need space and grace to be aware of and grow from their mistakes. If we canceled everybody, we just all need to go to an island by ourselves. And that's it. Maybe take our best you know, dog and cat with us. And that's it. You know, give people a chance. Now, when you have the opportunity, when you know better, then you can do better. But a lot of us, and I'll just put myself in there, simply did not know better, do not know better. And now we have an opportunity to know and grow and expand and share what we're learning, share resources. You know, I started a Facebook group called The Intimacy of Race, where I share resources daily, have conversations weekly. And it's not to shame, blame, and guilt, but it is a safe place for for what I call white and white presenting people to have resources to learn so that when you know better, you can do better. But a lot of people just simply didn't know that saying all lives matter was not appropriate at that time. You know, and so Yes, we get to really have a deeper knowing of ourselves, of where we grew up, grew up in and what our thoughts are. And, you know, instead of asking why, 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 what is the next best action of integrity? What can I do? What do I need to learn? How can I be better? You know, you want to ask open-ended questions that move you forward to what your goal is, as opposed to being like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I think that? We all know we grew up in a society that was built on racist ideals and principles. We got it. Now let's move forward. What's next? What can we create that's better for us? I love that. And I immediately behind the scenes just joined your Facebook group because <laughs> I love that conversation, those safe places to make mistakes and actually to be encouraged to make mistakes. And that's been one of my big takeaways through the uprising and and the things that have been happening since 2020 and like this kind of opportunity to reflect on these things that I didn't feel presented to me in quite the same way before as a white woman, because 
like you said, I was very focused on the overt demonstrations of racism that I did not feel like I aligned with. But when I looked into the white fragility and just have these opportunities to to observe things like cultural appropriation, which is something we actually had the opportunity to talk about in this podcast last year because I unknowingly was participating in cultural appropriation. And I had this moment through my kind of defensive reaction at first to to actually step back and examine how I was participating in it. And instead of like acting like a victim and like, oh, you know, I didn't realize it and all of that, which I think is is very common for white people. I took it as a humbling experience to observe all different types of my behavior. And another opportunity came up for me today in a much smaller way. But I I spend a lot of time on TikTok. That, that's my form of procrastination. <laughs> as our listeners know well, I will go on there. But it's also a phenomenal place for education in a lot of ways, because you get to hear from voices around the world. And one of the voices that I heard today was speaking out against this TV show that I really enjoyed called The White Lotus. And The White Lotus seemingly touches upon white privilege. And the whole show is based in Hawaii. And it touches upon what what goes on with Native Hawaiians and how the white tourists come in and kind of take advantage of, of all of that. And I thought, as I think many viewers did, that the show was like encouraging and pointing out what was going on on Hawaii. But but an actual, I believe he was Hawaiian himself, came out on TikTok to say, no, this show is catered to white people and it's through the white lens. So it can't really represent someone who's not white. It can't represent the natives because it was made for white people to, in a way, have themselves get a pat on the back. Like, oh, you acknowledged your racism in this way. Like, great. Now you're more woke or something. And it was a very humbling thing to watch because I realized that part of me felt a little, quote, woke while watching that show and being like, yeah, like, this is awful what white people do to natives and, you know, all this cultural appropriation and the way that we manipulate people through our privilege. And I was so grateful to have someone point that out, because if they hadn't pointed it out, I would have continued on thinking that I was so evolved in, in, you know, my thinking. And that's like the best opportunity. So I'm so excited to be part of your group. And I and I, I also agree with the approach of pointing things out without shame. It's like, it's okay that you behaved in some way or thought a certain way, but now you need to change it. Like, don't worry about what you did. Well, I guess it's even hard to verbalize. So I don't know if this is coming out correctly, but it's not that we shouldn't take accountability for our past. But it's like, we can't shame ourselves and cancel ourselves to the point where we can't move forward. Am I articulating that in a way that you would align with, Eva? Or is there another way to phrase it? Here's what I would say about that. I never should on myself or should on other people. But I do take the listen and learn approach. In June of last year, I held a a live three-hour forum called the Allyship Awareness Forum. And it was a listen and learn event with six leading powerful women of color because 
what I was experiencing was the silence that had previously gone on in the Black community as whole because of the history of making white people uncomfortable often led to, to death and destruction. So then we had an opportunity and experience to use our voice. And, you know, people are using their voice in a myriad of different ways. But also as um, white and white presenting people, you now have the opportunity to listen without, to listen and learn and reflect and digest without feeling the need to always respond or react. And that's where the difficulty was lying on both sides, you know, sharing our voices as uh, people of color in a way that didn't shame, blame, and guilt. And that there was a lot of pent up anger and frustration and trauma in the way a lot of people were sharing their voices. And then there was a lot of patience on the other end, but then there was also a lot of defensiveness judgment, self-imposed judgment and guilt that was ancestrally coming up in white people. So we had, we had ancestral trauma, ancestral guilt and shame. So all of this was like bubbling to the surface and it was just all like a volcano just spewing all over the place and people weren't quite sure how to handle it. And then when you get social media responses that pour salt in wounds on both sides, then the reaction is to be quiet and I'm not going to share anymore. That's it. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I'm afraid of doing it wrong. And so then nothing moves forward. And then we get stagnant until somebody else's murder is videotaped. And, you know, my mission is to really create a space. And, you know, in the book, the book is so, the book is a representation of the live forum. You know, I decided to take that forum and put it in a digestible book where it really is 101, you know, for dummies, whatever you want to call it, but it really is a basic blueprint, if you will, on to get started. You don't have to be, you know, out there with a picket signs, have signs all over your house and cars, but here are ways to make a difference in your life, you know, at home, at work, and in your community so that it's sustainable. Just like high performance habits, we want sustainable change in action, not just change in action when in response to a tragic event. You know, what can we do in our lives that we're habit stacking and we're building when it comes to being an ally and having what I call cultural intelligence? Because you've got social intelligence, you've got, you know, emotional intelligence, you've got personal intelligence. What about the cultural intelligence? What do you need to do to increase your cultural intelligence and awareness so that you are creating safe spaces at home, at work, and in your communities that you, you know, our differences are more celebrated and not seen as differences, but, you know, how can we create those in our world, in our bubbles? And if everybody takes care of their bubble, you know, then all of the bubbles are taken care of. And, and that's the approach that I'm giving. And, you know, you really can't be a high performer unless you have a certain level of inclusive intelligence or cultural intelligence, because so many studies have shown that the more diverse your world is, especially when we're talking about business, you know, the higher your success is. 
you know, so you don't want to just have oh, seats at the table that you performatively fill with diverse voices, but you want to give voices to the table. You want to amplify voices in a way and you want to make sure that, you know, you can cut through some of the cobwebs, for lack of a better word, so that these voices are amplified and heard and have the opportunity that they haven't had in the past. And you're going to just find how much richer your life, your business, your success is because it's just an enrichment of who you are to have more cultural and diverse intelligence and inclusivity in your life and business. This Eva, it makes me think about how I think in the world right now, depending on what media you're paying attention to, I mean, really, Whitney talked about her lens. And certainly, the three of us have different lenses based on our experience, our upbringings, our childhood, our races, our genders. It's one thing that I try and remember as I go through life. Sometimes I have amnesia, truth be told, but I try and remind myself that the person I'm speaking to is living in a different, how do I say this? They're living in a different frame of reality because of their belief systems, their subconscious, the filters they have. But what you're describing about genuine diversity and inclusivity, not to fill a quota, not because it's some corporate mandate, but doing it because, as you you said, life is richer and more interesting, it seems to follow nature to me. Because if I think about a garden, an edible garden, If you have a monocrop where you're just growing the same thing, you know, acres and acres of the same thing, the soil and the food is not as rich or plentiful or nutritious as a garden or acreage where you have an incredible variety of different things. So to back up what you said with an analogy, and I think about food because I love food, I think about food a lot. It's like the richness and the diversity is what makes it more fulfilling, much like what you described. But I think what we're seeing in the world right now, to go back to the point I was trying to make, is is people, I think, out of fear and confusion seem to be siloing their realities. I'm only going to hang out with people that are pro-vaccine. I'm only going to hang out with people that are anti-vaccine. I'm only going to hang out with Republicans. I'm only going to hang out with Democrats. I'm only going to align with people that make me feel safe in my little sheltered bubble. And if they agree with me, I'll feel safe and okay. But to your point, Eva, that seems to be delaying the progress we could experience as a human race collectively saying, I may not agree with you, I may not understand, but I want to and I'm willing to, even though we might come from different backgrounds and belief systems, as opposed to what I see happening, which is, I don't agree with you, you believe differently, no, just you be over there, I don't even want to hear it. How do we get people to move from fear and this weird sort of tendency they have to shelter and bubble themselves to say, oh, wait, maybe I can feel safe enough to speak to someone who believes differently than me, who's had a different upbringing, different race, different gender, different sexual orientation. Because it seems to me that the hatred and the divisiveness comes from fear. What's been your experience with the roots of that? And, and how do we encourage people to move from this defensive stance to opening themselves to experiencing different points of view in other people's lives? Well, isn't that the million-dollar question, Jason? 
if I figured this out, I'm running for president, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to take over the entire country. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head with a lot of people are moving in, in fear and judgment. I actually had this conversation this morning that the real pandemic is the diverse, is the division. You know, the, the division that this world, our country is, is seeing right now is more deadly than the pandemic and the vaccine combined, in my opinion. But one of, one way that I think we can open ourselves up to moving forward is, first of all, to people just, conflict happens when you don't feel seen, heard, or respected. That That's the bottom line. So how can we not only feel seen, heard, and respected ourselves, but make people of different backgrounds, opinions, different humans, all of the humans in our lives feel seen, heard, and respected. And it's the power of questions. It's the power of asking solution-based, I say, open-ended questions. And it first starts with listening. You know, most of us listen to react or respond or defend. We're not listening to hear. We're not listening for understanding. And I think once you can open your heart and your ears up to listen, to understand a person who's differing from you, what's really going on under the rhetoric, under the under? What are they afraid of? People are afraid of dying, whether they're dying from the vaccine or dying from the pandemic. And I think that's the bottom line fear is we're all afraid of dying. It's just the how we're going to die. So some people are mitigating that risk. I choose to die from getting vaccinated. I choose to take my chance and die from getting COVID, you know, whatever that looks like. But it really is mitigating the risk. But when you take the time to ask people what and how questions, like, what do you think we should do? What do you feel is the best solution? How would you handle this differently? How do you think we could move past that? Just like you're asking and, you know, and get more into the inquiry for listening to understand what's going on with the person who has a differing view from you. You're going to find that there's a softening that comes down and the defenses and maybe somebody will say, you know what, I'm really afraid that they just don't know enough. And so I don't want to make this decision right now. And so I'm choosing to do nothing and wait and see. I have people in my family that are afraid of the vaccine because of underlying and past health conditions and what that said. And I get that. I understand that. And then, you know, the dental hygienist in me come in, let's buy you some gloves, make sure you mask, wash your hands. Here's a giant vat of hand sanitizer. Like, you know what, just please just protect yourself as much as possible, you know? And then there's, there's people who are vaccinated, you want to say the same thing. Like my family always made fun of me. Every time I traveled, I had a scarf that I wrapped around my face. I was like almost Michael Jackson 2.0 when it came to covering my face. Never touched a door handle, an escalator, nearly fell and broke my neck several times because of the level of cooties that I didn't want to catch. And I traveled 
literally five days before the whole world and the airlines and everybody shut down, I was coming back from North Carolina to California. And I remember looking at my family who always made fun of mommy as a germaphobe. I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who's laughing now, baby? Now we all have to wear masks. And as a dental hygienist, I wore a mask all the time anyway. But I understand it was always uncomfortable. But people have different experiences is that they're basing their decisions off of, and you're not always aware of that. But if you are willing to listen so that they feel heard and understood and respected, I think that's the first step that we get to create and just breaking down all the barriers and defenses and just having a conversation like, ah, I get it. I understand why you feel that way. Thank you for sharing that with me. I appreciate that. Thank you. This must be hard for you. That's it. Like you should. Like, nah, brah. <laughs> That's not how to bring, you know, shame, blame, and guilt never brought anybody together, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's wonderful advice, Eva. And, and I think you're, you're closer than most to a presidential nomination. If you did decide to run, I'd be like, this woman has some really heartfelt, actionable, real world things that she needs to share with humanity. So that being said, Eva, you have so many wonderful resources online that people can access around everything we've talked about. You have this incredible book that I want to order a copy of called The Intimacy of Race. I mean, your Amazon reviews are just off the charts on this book. If y'all want to check this out, she also has an incredible Instagram as well that we've been perusing. We will link to everything related to the wonderful Eva Medelek. That is her website, E-V-A-M-E-D-I-L-E-K.com. We will link to her Instagram her book, her website, everything for you to learn more from this incredible, heartfelt leader that we have here today. And we love that we have the Brendan connection with you, Eva. And the rebounder connection. The rebounder connection. It's well, like yeah. the two of us. Jason needs I to get know, on board. I need with to be this. on listen, I just need to move my ass, period. That's just, if I it mean, takes me on a rebounder or what, I just I need to move. But I've been very sloth like. Moving your body to Stevie Wonder on a rebounder sounds like the type no. of workout you would like. That's why, yeah. When you were when you were riffing on that, Eva, I'm like, we have the same playlist. She's dropping Motown. She's dropping Bill Withers. She's dropping old soul music. Like, if I showed you my playlist, yeah, you have that special playlist you made, which is like a, a sweet thing we're sharing. You made that playlist to dance while you were doing dishes to get some movement. Is Stevie Wonder on it? Oh, st- I got multiple Stevie Wonder songs. I got Marvin. I've got the Spinners. I've got the Isley Brothers. I've got Bill Withers. I mean, it goes deep. I'm going to interject one second. When I got married in 2009, I married a man who doesn't like Stevie Wonder. Exactly. And I remember the DJs at my wedding. You know, my husband and I had an agreement. No, Stevie Wonder. And my DJs looked at me and they said, and you're still going through with the wedding? <laughs> now that's oh love. <laughs> that's love. I have to say something, Eva, that is so funny on this tip. I used to joke back in the day that one of my deal breakers as far as dating criteria, I shit you not, was if they don't like Stevie Wonder, they're dead to me. <laughs> That was one of my criteria. So I want to actually sit down and I want to ask your husband, why? 
why don't you like not not even just how can you not like Stevie Wonder? Like to me, that's up there with someone like eh, I don't really like chocolate. I could take or leave chocolate. I'm that's the same level of reaction I have when people tell me they don't like Stevie Wonder is when I've I've met like four people my entire life. They're like, yeah, I, I don't really like. I'm like, what do you mean you don't like chocolate? What? what? What alien race are you from? This is craziness. You know, I'm just, we have to end. I, I have to step away. Wait, I have wait. to take time. One more thing. When I was a hygienist in New York, one of my patients was Stevie Wonder's personal attorney. And I'm at work one day and he get, calls me up. He goes, Stevie's playing Radio City for one night tonight. You want to go? And I was like, yes, I will find a babysitter. I will go. And I was on the floor in the front at a Stevie Wonder concert at Radio City Music Hall. And I was just like, who can I find to come with me? And I went with a guy I used to date, but he loved Stevie Wonder. And I was like, you know, we didn't work out, but we're going to rock out to some Stevie. And yeah, I mean, it is, you know, it could have been a deal breaker, but hey, the guy didn't like Stevie (laughs) and... You know, my husband and I had that that giant hiccup in our relationship. So, you know, he's got to have some really, really good redeeming qualities for me to still be sticking it out. And this is where you don't, we're cancel culture. I could miss out on all of the beautiful experiences and blessings with this man if I canceled him for not liking Stevie, right? (laughs) So be careful with your cancel culture. I'm still working on him, guys. All right, I'm going to let you guys go. I can't think of a more joyful and fun way to end this podcast with you, Eva. Anytime you want to break it down with some Stevie or some old soul, you've got a kindred spirit over here in me. So thank you for sharing your love. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your perspectives. Again, for all of the listeners and the viewers on YouTube, go to our website, which is wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'll have links to all of Eva's stuff if you want to follow up and learn more about her wonderful coaching work, her work around race and inclusivity. It's been an absolute pleasure, Eva. Thank you for gracing us with your presence today. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.